So we are at the moment going through Acts in chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 13. And uh, we are in something that is called Paul's first missionary journey or the first missionary journey of the church, uh, which we have recorded in the book of Acts. And uh, Paul and Barnabas are set out, and Liam preached last week on the opening of chapter 13 and essentially gave us a full exposition of the purpose of the church, that the church exists so that lost people can get found and get saved, so that uh, saved people can grow and that growing people uh, can be sent. But I I wonder if you noticed in in verse 2 of that opening passage where they were worshipping, they were having a, a church service, they were fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What is the work to which you have called them? Yes, Lord, you know, what is it that you want us to do? Does anyone wish that God was a bit more specific sometimes? You know, I wonder how this meeting was going and and whether, you know, we tend to visualize that, hey, there was probably some, you know, lightning revelation that all of them suddenly heard the word of God audibly, the voice of God, and like set apart for me, Saul and, and Barnabas. Well, I think maybe it was, it's probably a little bit more subtle than that. I think that they probably had things stirring within them going, you know, we really need to do something about this. We really need to get on whatever, you know, God is wanting us to do. And they just get this sense that, you know what, I reckon Saul and Barnabas, you guys need to, to do something about this. And the thing is, it was not very clear, right? God said, set them apart for the work that I've called them to. And I wonder if you've got any inkling inside you that maybe there's something God's calling you to. Maybe there's, there's something that, that he's up to working in your life, but it's not very clear. And you're waiting for the moment when it becomes crystal clear and then you go, all right, here's my five-step plan. I know what I'm doing for the next 10 years. Uh, let's go. Well, I can tell you that from Paul and Barnabas' experience there, it was probably not that way. I think that they had an idea and they just went. And so figuring out what their mission was, figuring out what God had called them to was more or less a process of trial and error. And we know retrospectively that was to go through the ancient uh, Mediterranean into uh, you know, the mainland of Europe and, and Asia Minor and to preach the word of God and to do that in, in particular ways which developed out of actually who they are and who God was making them. And we've called this series that we're in at the moment Life on Mission. And I wonder what images that conjures up in your mind when I say Life on Mission. Do you envisage a, you know, a spy agency and, and a top secret briefing between you know, people who are unreasonably attractive with very low BMIs, all you know, getting this important download of, of knowledge of, about what they're going to do. Or maybe you picture a war room with, with generals and, and colonels moving little figurines out on, a, out on a board representing the war front. Or maybe your mind goes to the front line and, and soldiers there all you know, bravely rushing towards their objective, trying to complete their mission. You know, I just get the sense that for a lot of us here, we're just kind of tired. Life is difficult. Life is complex. There are so many different things that you know, you have to do to, to just survive, to just be alive. And for us to get up here and say, life should be on mission. You, your life should be surrendered to mission to God. You know what? That just makes me tired. You know, I don't relate to any of those people in the, in the briefing room. I, I can't really relate. to. I'm, I'm not a captain shouting out orders at, at troops and soldiers. I, I can't really relate to the, to the guy in the trenches who's psyching himself up to, to leap out and rush the enemy. 
You know, I can barely relate to the stray cat who's wandered into the trenches to avoid the noise. You know, maybe maybe the thing that you most relate to in that scene is the mud in the bottom of the trench that just gets constantly squashed and squashed and squashed until it's, you know, sloppy and no good. You're like, don't talk to me about mission. I don't want to hear any mission unless it involves me going home and taking a big nap. And you know what? There's another issue here. And if I can just call out an elephant in the room, and that is you've got a couple of young pastors telling you, give your life to God and be on mission for him. It's like, all right, well, thank you, Mr. I get paid to be at church. I'll go home and feel bad about myself because I don't get you know, to read my Bible and pray as much as you do. Can I just undo some of that for us at the moment? Can I give you a, a life-giving perspective on mission? Because at the moment, your life is probably getting stretched in so many different ways. You're wearing so many different hats. There's one that you've got to wear when you're at, when you're at school or when you're at uni and you're, and you're doing your, your study. There's another that you wear when you're with your friends. There's another that you have to wear when you're at work. There's another that you wear at home, and, and then somehow in the background, you've got to organize your life and your finances, and you've got to insurance, and you, you've got to figure out when's the right time to go to the dentist, and, and life is hard, and you've barely got enough time to sort of feel like you're yourself, let alone like you can enslave all of these areas under one common purpose. You know, we tend to think that I'm not a successful Christian unless I figured out how to glorify God and bring people to Christ when I'm taking my bin out on bin day. But if we look at the moment that Jesus calls his disciples, in Matthew 4:19, he says these words: "Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." And you see, their mission was much more about who they were becoming than it was a specific call of what you would do. Jesus didn't say, "Come and follow me, and uh, you will also fish for men." He didn't say, come follow me and take my three-year course on men fishing. He didn't say, come and follow me, and if you make the grade, if you're good enough, he's given a little side-eye to Judas there, then you will become fishers of men. No, who's doing the work in that sentence? Jesus. Jesus. Your mission is about who Jesus is making you, not about what you are Doing. And so you might be struggling to get some sense of identity, to get some sense of actually who am I in this world and in this crazy life. And you don't want to think about mission as like an added burden on top of that. But let me tell you that those things are one and the same. You figure out who you are in Christ and life on mission is going to flow out of that. You know, there are a couple of problems with uh, the way that we understand mission and, and in the church, and, and we tend to arrive at a couple of unhealthy assumptions. Has anyone seen or read the Divergent series? You can feel free to put your hand up. Yeah, okay, a handful. I mean, I expected, if I'm honest, I expected a bit more. It's like right in the peak of YA uh, fiction, so it makes my English teacher heart a bit sad. But anyway, good books, go and read them. Or if you really don't want to read, go and watch the movies. But the idea is that it's like this dystopian future and uh, essentially you grow. And then once you become, uh, you, you sort of come of age, you go through this selection process, this testing process, and you eventually get put into one of four categories depending on sort of which way your, your personality leans and, and all of your, your giftings lean. And that's how the world works. 
right? You, you get to choose one of these four categories, and if you don't fit neatly into one of those, well, it's bad. It's really bad. And we tend to grow up in the church and, and sort of come to this assumption that, you know what? A person who is totally sold out for God has to fit into, you know, one of a few categories. My life is not devoted to God and, and seeking his purpose and, and fully on his mission unless I'm in one of these four categories. And let me give you four. I'm a pastor. Unless I get to being a pastor, then I'm, my life isn't, you know, properly lived for God. Or unless I'm a missionary, my life isn't properly on mission for God. Or unless I'm, you know, a, a volunteer or, or a, a, uh, uh, an elder in the church and, you know, I devote all of my life to that. Or unless I go in the world and I make lots and lots of money and I give it all to the church. Unless you fit into one of those four categories, then, you know, your life can't actually be fully devoted to God. And you see, the problem with that understanding and that framework is that it doesn't take account of the fact that every single one of you has an individual destiny and calling and purpose in Christ. As many souls as there are in this room, just as many individual pathways and destinies to having a fully devoted life exist. All right, each of you is a new creation if you are in Christ, which means that you have a specific identity, which means that you are called to a specific purpose. And it doesn't have to look like the same as what somebody else has looked like. There are plenty of people who've tried to pursue a pathway that actually doesn't line up with who they are, but they're, they're sincere, they're genuine, they want to love God, they want to be involved, but they've been told that, okay, well, it looks like this, therefore, go and do that. And that's not what we're here to do. Paul gives us the analogy of the body of Christ. He says in the book of Corinthians that everybody is, is different. Some are toes, some are noses, some are hands, some are feet, and, and all of them, when they work together, actually give life and function to this thing, this body of Christ, this church. And each part is just as essential as the next, but they're all different. And it's a great analogy. It, it teaches us that all of us are important in how the kingdom of God functions. And, you know, there are some elements of our uh, identities in Christ that are, that are shared across everyone. And that is the, the beauty of the gospel, that if you have come to Jesus, then you are justified, which means that God doesn't look at you as though you are a sinner anymore. In fact, God has fundamentally and really changed your identity to be righteous in Christ. It means that you are joining in the resurrection. It means that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that you are a new creation, that you're able to live a new life. But the Bible also teaches us that everyone is given gifts according to the measure of grace given to them. For God's mind only is the, is the deciding factor in that process. So each of you has an individual destiny to pursue with God, and that's why Paul says that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't mean earn your salvation. It didn't mean work really hard at it. It means, well, you've got to figure it out. Some of it, because it's yours. It's you to figure out. And so that's the pathway that all of us are on. So that's the first misconception that we have, is that there's only a few pathways to, to really being fully sold out and on fire for God. The second thing is that we assume that ministry is done only by that group of people or by a subset of people or, you know, let's be honest, church staff. What, what happens on here is ministry and then what happens down there is not. And I tell you that that's not just the wrong idea, but it's unbiblical. <laughs> Ephesians 4 tells us that God has given to the church 
particular gifts. This is how the church operates, right? And it says that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints. But by the way, saints is all of you. It's not just the people who've been canonized. All of us are saints. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, which results in the building up of the body of Christ. And so it's just the way that it works that that's God has given particular people the gifts to build up the church. And the point is that you guys are actually equipped to minister to each other and to the world out there. That's the way that God has set up this whole thing. And see, the thing about it is that we are each pursuing that individual pathway which looks like, and now hear this, right? This is, this is a very important, um, I don't know, life lesson seems like a really weak expression here. But what I'm trying to say is that uh, this is a very important piece of the puzzle of figuring out your life as a Christian. Okay, because your unique identity, your calling, right, the person that God wants you to be is you plus the Holy Spirit. Okay, each of us is, is created and we know that this world is, is the result of, of the fall and, and of brokenness. Brokenness has invaded this world and so each of us has some kind of a, a, a part of our true identity. We were created to be perfect. We were created to be God and the redemption of that is when you are indwelt and regenerated and in partnership with the Holy Spirit. We sometimes get this, this false idea of how the Holy Spirit operates uh, in that, you know, it's, it's like our, our life is, a, is the, the cockpit of a, a plane and we're sitting there at the, at the wheel. And then we're like, you know, it'd be great if Holy Spirit, you could just take over. And then what that means is that we step back, we leave the chair and the Holy Spirit comes and, and does stuff. And look, I'm not going to say that the Holy Spirit can't do that. But the vast majority of the time is actually you working together, is you in partnership with the Holy Spirit. It's not less of you, it's actually the most you that could ever be, is you in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Is this making sense? Am I being clear? The most you that you can be is when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, and your mission, the calling that is on your life is only gonna come out when you learn how to operate in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we, we, in fact, it's, it's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the rest of our life figuring out what that looks like. There are a couple of, you know, big pieces that we could put in place. Learning to partner with the Holy Spirit looks like holiness. Can I say that? Right? It looks like actually cleaning up the sin in your life. It looks like deciding, I want to glorify God in my body because that's what the, world, that's what the Bible says that I should do. It looks like being obedient to God, and it looks like following what he says, not for the sake of following rules, but for the sake of bringing glory to him and operating out of thankfulness. You are the most you when filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happens in our passage? We're in Acts chapter 13. We'd better read it. From verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... And if, as if, sorry, as if to emphasize that point, okay, notice that verse three, then after fasting and praying, they, right, the church, laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they're sent out by the church. And then verse four, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So you see the actions of the church and the actions of the Holy Spirit were indistinguishable. They were happening in partnership. It's the same with you. That's how your life should look like. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And that journey, so at this point they are in Antioch in Syria, and there are lots of ancient cities called Antioch. In fact, in ancient history, people love just naming cities the same thing. Um, and so I think on the next slide, we've got a, a map there so you can see. Because I was confused when I read this because um, I studied ancient history and one of the things that you look at is the Battle of Salamis. It's a very important naval battle. And so it said that they sailed to Cyprus and then arrived at Salamis. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Salamis is nowhere near Cyprus. But turns out there's another Salamis as well, which is on Cyprus. So they left um, Ant Syria and Antioch and they're about to go to another Antioch. Uh, and they sail, uh, what is that? West, from there, and they arrive at Salamis, Salamis, and then they go all across this island of Cyprus all the way to Paphos. While they're doing that, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues, which we know is the, the place that Jews meet to have their um, religious, what they do, that's the synagogue. Uh, and they had John to assist them. And John is uh, uh, not the apostle John, but it is John Mark, who is actually the author of the gospel of Mark, right? An, an eyewitness to Jesus. And so he's there as a point of credibility. You know, every time they talk about uh, what happened to Jesus and, and during his ministry, because neither Saul nor Barnabas were there, right? But uh, John Mark was. And so they can be like, and then Jesus did this. Isn't that right, John Mark? And John Mark goes, yeah. And everyone goes, all right. So when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And so they, they arrive at this place called Paphos and they come across these two characters. One of them is a walking oxymoron. He is a walking contradiction. He's called a magician, and we've met another magician so far in the book of Acts, Simon the Magician, but he's also called Jewish. Right? And it was, it was illegal. It was against the law, against Jewish law to practice magic. Because we're not talking about, you know, he likes to do card tricks. He's got a few, you know, fancy dice. This is full-on proper, you know, witchcraft stuff. Mimicking the powers of God through accessing uh, demonic uh, occurrence and demonic powers. So it is a, a walking contradiction to be both a Jew and practicing magic, which is why he's called a false prophet. And as if to make things worse, his name is Bar-Jesus, or in Aramaic, that's Bar-Yeshua, which is, uh, the Bar means son, okay? And so his name is son of Jesus. It may surprise you to know that Jesus or Yeshua was actually a fairly common first century name. Uh, and there's, no, that's a sidetrack, we won't go down there. But can you imagine, can you imagine Paul and Barnabas and uh, John Mark coming into this place and they see this guy? Not only does he claim to be a Jew, but he's, he's also a, a magician. He's practicing witchcraft. Not only is he, is he doing that, but his name is Son of Jesus. And they would have just looked at this guy and there would have just been an absolute stench about his personality. They would have found this guy just absolutely abhorrent. Like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? So there's this guy, Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, Sergius Paulus, a proconsul is essentially equivalent to 
Uh, we saw Herod was a governor, a regional governor. And um, proconsul is basically the same office, but for a senatorial province um, rather than a, a non-senatorial province. But he's an important guy. He's a very important uh, Roman official. And he's called a man of intelligence. And there are lots of words for intelligence in, in the Greek. And this is one that means sort of intelligence, but also like virtue. He's not just like street smarts, but he's like, oh, no, that, let's listen to what this guy has to say. Or, or he's, he's upright in his knowledge, right? And so as an outflow of that, he summoned Barnabas and Saul and he sought to hear the word of God. So he is warm to the gospel. How this other Jewish magician got into his entourage, I don't know. Then we have in verse 8, But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, here we get a fuller picture of just how irksome this character is to the, the party that is there. Because Luke, who writes the book of Acts, okay, Luke uh, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as kind of a two-part series. He cannot bear to call this guy by Jesus. He's like, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I cannot associate this wicked and contradictory character at all whatsoever with the name of Jesus. And so he essentially makes up a name from a Semitic word for magician. He's like, but, but this guy, magician the magician, and Elimus is not really known to be a name. And, and so he's, he's essentially like trying to avoid calling this guy by Jesus because he's like, this is no son of Jesus. This is no one and nothing to do with the Jesus that we know. He opposed them and sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So you've got Barnabas and Saul and John Mark who've been summoned to, to give this message, and then you've got this sort of like rodent-like character hanging about who can sniff that his influence is about to be diminished, that somebody else is going to come and kind of usurp his position of, you know, he's, he's tight with the proconsul. And so he's literally seeking to oppose them, to turn them away from the faith. And no doubt, using some of his Jewish background to be able to do it. A really problematic character. And then in verse 9, says, But Saul, who was also called Paul. <laughs> and we could, we could stop there for a while and explore that. Because up until this point in the book of Acts, Saul has been known by the name Saul. And, but then here, blink and you miss it, suddenly he's Paul. And then for the rest of the book of Acts, he's Paul. And for the rest of history, he's Paul. And to the church, he's St. Paul, the apostle. And even in the secular world, he is one of the most influential philosophers and thinkers and writers of this period of time. But in this moment, his name changes from Saul to Paul, and we'll look at that a little bit soon. So it says, uh, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what, did we, what did we say just before? You are most you when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Paul at this moment is suddenly operating in the person that God has called him to be, which is him full of the Holy Spirit. He looked intently at this guy and he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. 
Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and then he went about seeking people to lead him by the hands. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Paul looks at him and says, you call yourself son of Jesus. No, you're a son of the devil. Don't try and own that name whatsoever. How dare you try and turn people away from this faith? And I'm still waiting for the Holy Spirit to fill me in a moment and then pronounce that kind of curse over over somebody. It hasn't happened yet. I don't think it will happen either. But this is a very interesting occurrence uh, which happens because it's obviously quite miraculous. Suddenly he's blind and, and he's going about and he, he can't feel his way. And then at that sight of the miracle, as well as we're told his astonishment at the teaching of the Lord, then the proconsul believes. And by the way, there is, uh, what's it called? Archaeological evidence about the family of Sergius Paulus being believers in, that, um, in the island of, of Cyprus. So you can look that up as well. So, What do we do with this story? How is it that Paul is operating in the Holy Spirit, that he is being the most him that he could possibly be? And so I'm going to give you three things to help us learn how to be on mission, how to live a life on mission, and to find out who actually you are. And if you're somebody who doesn't know Jesus, if you're somebody who this whole religion thing or Christianity thing hasn't quite made sense to you, then can I just say that you are going to wander around struggling to find purpose and meaning in your life and to know why problems occur and to know why things happen to you until you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's the answer to all of those questions. So if you're looking for a sense of identity, it is found in Jesus. So the first thing that we need to do, if we're going to live a life on mission and if we're going to understand who God is calling us to be, is that we need to own our story. You need to own your story. You see, the thing is, in this passage, Paul and Barnabas are actually operating out of their own story. They're using the aspects of their past, which they know affect their present. They affect who they are. Notice that as they go around the island, they go into the synagogues. Why? Well, because they're Jews. In fact, Paul was a pretty good Jew. He was a pretty important Jew. He studied under the feet of a guy called Gamaliel, who, by the way, was renowned throughout the Jewish world, so much so that they called him the teacher. They all knew who Gamaliel was. And Paul was a student of Gamaliel, and so he would have had a specific rank as a Pharisee. He would have had specific, you know, markings on his robe that showed he had undertaken that level of of study and qualification. And so when he walked into a synagogue, and they were going about their thing, their custom would have been to look around and go, do we have any special guests with us? Ah, yes, of course. Here is a man who has clearly learned. Uh, Would you like to share with us a word of encouragement? And Paul goes, me? (laughs) If you insist. I'm quite surprised at this. Not really. So Paul is leaning into his past. He's leaning into his story. He is owning who he actually is because he understands that that is opening doors for him that would not be open for someone else. If you're somebody who's grown up in a loving Christian family and there are, you know, your your story is is squeaky clean and your your greatest moment of confession was, uh, you know, occasionally not listening to what your mother asked you to do, chances are 
And this is just a wild guess. God is not calling you to prison ministry. But if you're somebody who's been incarcerated and, and found Jesus, chances are you're actually going to be very effective in that space because you understand those people. You understand what they're going through and what they've been through. You know, two of my favorite ministries to be involved in uh, over the last couple of decades have been uh, in Scripture Union camps, one of them called SMAD, which stands for Song, Music, Art, Drama, Dance, and the other one called GENTS, which is just for, for high school boys because, well, <laughs> I was a boy. I'm still male. And so it made sense. I understood those people. I could minister to them. My story resonated with them. Their story resonated with me. Their struggles resonated with me. And the artsy kids, well, I I get them. I understand what what they're like, what's going through their brain, and and I can relate to them in in certain aspects. And so struggles that they've been through are often ones that I've been through. And if I own my story, then that makes it effective and powerful in that context. You know, it's one of the most important things about looking over your story, because if, if there is somebody out here who has not been through any suffering, then please come up on the stage and you can preach the rest of the sermon. <laughs> no, all of us go through suffering. But the thing is that your suffering are actually your, your, your scars from suffering. Your scars are your qualifications for ministering. Right? The things that you have been through will determine how effective you are in where you go and what you do. You know, Paul operates out of his story far more than in simply going to the synagogue. Notice he also has special status as a Roman citizen, which probably gained him access to this guy, Sergius Paulus. But even more than that, what's happening in verse nine? When he, in, sorry, in verse ten, when he sees this guy and he sees somebody who's who's Jewish, somebody who's got a Jewish background, but he's actively opposing the gospel of Christ. What does he see? That was me. I used to do that. And what does he pronounce over this guy? He says, you are going to be blind. What happened to Paul? God struck him with blindness, which had to teach him that he was spiritually blind and they needed to uh, align his heart to repent and align his heart with God. And notice, notice that Paul says, you will be blind for a time. Why? (laughs) For a time. Surely it's better off for this miscreant to just be blind for the rest of his life and to wander around and to not bother anybody. Or is there a bit of grace? Because Paul knew that those, those couple of days when he was blind actually led him to a moment of grace where he was able to receive the Holy Spirit and to, uh, to believe in Jesus. You see, Paul is actually operating out of his own story, even in that proclamation of the curse. And even in that proclamation, there is still grace and there is still blessing. And you know what? This, often, if you have had a particular victory over something in your life, whether that's a victory over a particular sin or even uh, over a disease, if you've had a, a healing for something, often that gives you the, the spiritual power to bring that to bear in other people's lives as well, to minister in that way. And I'm not going to you know, try and over-explain it as though like this person has the, 100% has the gift for healing people who have blind eyes or, or whatever it is. But what I'm going to say is that if you've experienced it, then you've got the faith to call it out in somebody else's life. And I know that to be true for the, for the so many times where I've sat next to uh, a, a teenage boy who's telling me the same story that I knew from my teenage years. 
And I'm able to say to him, look, you, are, you, you can overcome that. You can. Because I've been there and I've done it. So you need to own your story, which includes all of the bits of suffering. It includes all of the scars. And, and this is one of the most powerful things about a redemptive story is that when you realize that those scars are in order for you to be able to minister to other people, right, that is an arc of redemption. Now, here's the, the other thing that you need to do. When you are owning your story, when you are telling your story, don't make yourself out to be the hero. Because you might get people to, to think that you're awesome and think that you're incredible, but you're not going to allow them to place their faith and trust in Jesus. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus is the hero of your story. So tell it that way. Use your story. Own your story. Make Jesus the hero of your story. Second thing, own your name. And so we had that sneaky, sneaky change from Saul of Tarsus to Paul. And now as, a, as somebody who grew up in the Roman world, Saul is a, is a Jewish name. We know that Saul comes from the Old Testament. There's the, the first one is King Saul the first king of Israel. Uh, and as a, as a Roman person, he would have had multiple names, and Paul probably would have been a name that he was called from a young age. But for whatever reason, prior to Acts 13, he's known as Saul, and then post-Acts 13 and forever into history, he's known as Paul. And there is this concept in the Bible of name change, that when God brings about the change of somebody's name, it's an important part of calling out their identity, calling out their, who they are in God. And we understand as New Testament people that that means calling out who they are in Christ as a new creation. Think back to Abraham, whose name was originally Abram. Abram meant father, father of one. Abraham, when God changed his name to Abraham, it came with a reiteration of the promise that he would be a father of many because the name Abraham means father of many. He was calling out his new identity or his wife, Sarah, whose name was Sarai. Now, Sarai means princess as in, you know, you are my princess, right? Princess in the eyes of a significant person. Right, whereas Sarah means princess without limits, without question, without boundary. Princess over you know, a, a kingdom, a, a group of people. Or what about Jacob? Jacob, who uh, his name meant uh, usurper. I mean, imagine calling your, um, well, no, I shouldn't say that. Jacob's a lovely name. <laughs> Wanted him. Uh, there, are, there are good meanings to Jacob as well. But it, it meant, you know, coming after because Jacob held on to the heel of his twin brother Esau as they were uh, being born. And so that was his name. But eventually his name gets changed. And, and the usurper part comes because he actually, you know, took the birthright from his, his twin brother Esau, who was technically the firstborn. But Jacob took the, the birthright of the firstborn. And his name was changed from the one who comes after, from usurper, to Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. And that happened after the moment when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And we understand that, you know, the nation that came from him, his sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. They became the nation of Israel. And we know that the people of Israel were one who basically did nothing other than kind of wrestle with God and against God. 
Or what about if we go to uh, the New Testament and we see uh, Simon, who is also called Peter, and Jesus just calls him. He says, hey, Simon, come here. I'm going to call you Peter. Now, Simon means uh, sort of something that you've heard, or, or it means reputation. And so we know that Peter seems to be somebody who was sort of always concerned with how he's perceived by people. He always wants people to make sure that they see him, that they see how important he is. It's all about his reputation. But Jesus says, no, your name is Peter. And Peter means uh, Petros, a, a small pebble, a little stone. Jesus gives him that new identity. In fact, he calls it out in, in another moment when Peter makes the confession that he is the Christ. And he says, uh, I, truly I tell you, uh, sue Petros, you are Peter, but uh, epitain Petran upon this rock. Right? It's a wordplay between Petros and Petran. On this rock, I will build my church. And so he gives him his new identity there as, as one of the pers- people who is a founding character in the church of Jesus. And then we have Paul, whose name Saul means somebody prayed for. And remember that Israel prayed for, Israel asked for a king, and they got Saul. Moral of the story, be careful what you pray for. God might just give it to you. Not really. But his name meant prayed for, but it also had all of this uh, attachment to that kingly background in the, in the history of Israel. And yet Paul is a name that means little. It means humble. And that is his name in Christ. That is who he is as, as a new creation. And if we look forward to uh, Revelation chapter 2, the letter to Pergamum says uh, in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What does that mean? I've got no idea. Sorry. Ask someone else. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so there is this idea in Scripture that if God changes your name, that he's revealing something about your identity in him, about who you are as a new creation in Christ. And that's true of every single one of you. And as we've already said, there are parts of who you are that are common to all of us as people who are saved by the blood of Jesus. But there are parts of you that belong to you and you only. And that's the the name that Jesus has written on this stone, which is part of your identity. You know, you might think that that's maybe, maybe that's a bit of a stretch to say that everyone's got a, a name that, that God has for them. I actually know what this, I guess, spiritual name is for me. I've got it engraved on the inside of my wedding ring. But at the very least, at the very least, this name speaks of who you are in Christ, of your identity in Christ, that you have a unique identity, which is you, plus the Holy Spirit. And, you know, finding out or, or hearing from God what this name actually is, is is normally just part of the journey. Normally it's, a, it's a, a step of or just along the journey towards maturity. But it's about owning who you are. Now notice that Paul's owning of this name is something that points forward. It doesn't separate him from his past, but it points forward because it's a Roman name and he knows I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he owns that name. So Paul's name encapsulates both his story and his mission field. So that's the first thing is own your story. The second thing is to own your name. 
And the third thing is to own your mission field. And I've been very careful to say mission field rather than mission. Because the idea of mission implies that, well, I've got to get up and go somewhere. And sometimes God's going to say that. Sometimes you do have to do that. But it doesn't matter where you are, you can still be living on mission if you understand that the area you are in is your mission field. Once those other pieces fall into place, once you are on the pathway to pursuing and understanding who you are in Christ, you are living out of your story and your identity, it makes mission natural. It's not something onerous. It's not something weird that you have to try and force into your, into your life. It's just who you are. If you are constantly seeking and are being filled by the Holy Spirit, mission will come out. Don't worry about it. But seek God and seek presence with him. Seek to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And then as Matthew 28 says, and as Liam told us last week, that it's as you are going, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And we need to also recognize that in understanding this concept of, of mission field, we need to take the emphasis off a function and put the emphasis on people, right? Because God has placed you in a situation where you have influence uh, with the people that are around you. And so you can see yourself, you can see your life as called to those people. And how many of us, uh, you know, find ourselves in a, in a workplace and we go, God, I pray that you would just give me somebody to, to witness to, somebody to share your gospel with, and you open your eyes and go, not these people, though. I don't like them. They're weird. But you can see yourself as wherever it is, whatever circles you move in, whether that's your family or your friendships or, or your workplace or, or your place of study, see that as your mission field. But in order to see that mission field, you have to see the people. Right? If you want to be successfully witnessing to those people, it means that you actually have to love them. <laughs> There's no point trying to do anything else if they don't recognize that actually you sincerely care for them and that the message you are bringing, which is a message of hope and a message of salvation and a message of life and a message of love, comes from the fact that you want that same life and love for them. In a couple of weeks... Uh, two weeks, in fact, we are putting on a, an evangelistic series here uh, at church, and that will essentially mark the starting point of our two-morning service format. So we're going from a 9 a.m. morning service to an 8 a.m. and a 10 a.m. For that two weeks, which is the 15th and the 22nd of October, this evening service will be paused. Uh, post that two weeks, this evening service uh, is essentially going to be run by, well, you guys. It's going to be taken on by, uh, uh, I guess, more or, more or less a, a young adult group, which is an amazing thing, amazing thing that, that all, of, all of you are going to get to grow in uh, the gifts that God has given you and in what he's called you to do and, and learning how to minister to each other, learning how to build uh, each other up in love. And it's not going to be perfect, and that's not the point. The point is that God is going to partner, or you're going to partner with God, God's going to partner with you, right? It's going to be you plus the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see actually the true you, who you were meant to be, who you were made to be.
But on that two weeks, we want to encourage you to come to the morning service and bring someone along. Think about who you might invite. Who are the people in your uh, circle that you know, you know, God's, this is my mission field. God has called me to this person. It doesn't have to be weird, right? You're not tacking on mission to, to who you are and what you already do. You are simply being who you are, which is, hey, <laughs> be friendly, <laughs> be nice, love that person, you know, see who they are, and then hand them, hand them, pray for them, and then give them one of these and say, hey, look, would, would, would you consider coming to this? You know, this is what I do on a Sunday. Hey, why not just make it as a, as a time for us to hang out? You know, I'd like to see you on, on the weekend. Why not come here? There's a morning tea. We can eat together. I'll, I'll buy you a coffee. Uh, and I'd love to just talk through some of these questions. Or, you know, if they don't want to talk about it, then that's fine. But make that invitation. We're going to just reflect for a moment, and um, Tanya uh, and maybe Kerry, well, just Tanya. Tanya's going to lead us in a, in a song to, to close the service. But I just want you to, to, in this moment, just reflectively think. So you might want to just close your eyes. What does it look like to own your story? What are the areas in your life that, that God has been writing a story of redemption? where God has brought you through either suffering or, or sin, has led you to a place of understanding his peace and his presence, or if you've had victory over that, what does your story look like? Because chances are that's your qualification for ministering to other people, and God wants to use that to minister to other people. You might even like to think, well, who are the people that I know who have the same hurts and the same uh, same things in their story. Maybe I need to reach out to that person and say, hey, look, I get it. I get what it's like to go through this. Hey, do you know what helped me? It might sound weird, but my faith really helped me. And if you're open to it, I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, I'm always careful in these moments when we're, we're talking about our own story because we, we get to the point of comparison and we think, well, somebody else has a great story, but I don't have a, a great story. And I think that there are two, two reasons we might think that. The first reason is that actually you haven't realised how much grace is in your story how much God has actually been, been kind and, and working powerfully in your life. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would tell people now exactly how much grace there has been through their whole life. <laughs> and the second thing, and I'm careful to, to say this, is that maybe you haven't given your life properly to God. Maybe there are areas you know God's been wanting to work and to break through that you haven't let him. And there's no story of victory because you haven't allowed his victory to come into your life. It's possible. Not always likely, but possible. And if that's you, then would you ask God, would you, would you yield to him that corner of your heart which he's been asking for? Allow him to write that story of redemption in your life. <laughs> mm -hmm.
God, we also just want to pray that you would reveal to us what our identity in Christ is, that new creation which is us plus the Holy Spirit, 50 of them unique in this room. Would you reveal that name to each of us? Show us who you're calling us to be. God, I want to thank you for the cross and I want to thank you for your finished work which has brought each of us from the slavery to sin to now righteousness, to to life in Christ, that you've made new all of those who have put their, their faith and their trust in you. God, what a wonderful miracle to be a part of. We love you, God. We lift up your name and we thank you. 